Support for Long Form this week comes from listening. If you've ever had to rip through a huge pile of academic papers, you know how painful it can be to spend all that time staring at a piece of paper. Listening makes it really simple to convert anything you have to read into spoken words that you can enjoy on the go. Uses AI to generate realistic voices that sound like actual human beings. Plus, it comes with a powerful set of tools that allows you to do stuff like skip over non-essential text, but also take notes with one click. Your life just got a lot easier. Normally, you'd get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use code longform at checkout. Hello, and welcome to the Long Forum Podcast. I'm Aaron Lammer, here with Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. Hey, Aaron. Aaron Lammer, Evan Ratliff. How are you guys? I believe this is the last new episode of the year. So a big thank you to everyone who's listened all year. Got to talk to David Woolman, who's someone I really wanted to have on the show for many years. He has written some of my favorite magazine features. I think he wrote some uh, features for Evan at uh, The Atavist. Uh, Most recently, he has a story in the New York Times that's about these two guys who fell under the sway of a anti-vax guru and tried to sail with him from Hawaii to some remote islands. I won't spoil it too much past that, but he uh, has written about all kinds of stuff over the years. He wrote a book that I really enjoyed about digital currency. He wrote a story that I always think about in Wired about this uh, sort of failed artist who became an art forger. I could go on and on. Great conversation. And I, I just want to add a little insight as someone who has worked in my capacity as an editor with David Woolman, that he's also very lovely to work with which I feel like, in addition to his skill and talent as a reporter and writer, explains his longevity in the magazine industry. One of the things we actually talked about that I don't think has gotten discussed too often on this show was uh, establishing a community of writers where you live, supporting each other, sharing knowledge, all that kind of stuff. The kind of stuff we like to see in this show, which is brought to you in partnership with Vox Media, They help us make it. Thanks to everyone over at Vox. Now here's Aaron with David Woolman. Hello, David Woolman. Hello. Very nice to get to talk to you. I understand that I am speaking to you from Hawaii. I believe it is the first time this podcast has connected with your time zone. What brings you to Hawaii? Uh, we moved here from Oregon about two and a half years ago. Uh, we have some family here, and I had uh, actually written a book relating to the area where we now live. And we were also a little interested in finding a place that was more outdoorsy during COVID. So we we ended up on the island of Hawaii. You wrote a book about, forgive me if I use the wrong term, cowboys in Hawaii? Correct. Yeah, my most recent book that I wrote with fellow writer named Julian Smith is called Aloha Rodeo. And it tells the story uh, at the turn of the century, a group of Hawaiian cowboys uh, known here as Paniolo traveled to Wyoming to compete in the biggest rodeo in the world and wiped the floor with the local guy talent and came, came back heroes. 
So yeah, most people outside of this place know nothing about Hawaii cowboy history. And so that was one I really just had to sink my teeth into. So I think that's actually a decent place to start. Uh, You write, I would say, within different niches. And one of them is historical writing. First of all, where are you finding stories like that? And additionally, once you come across something like that, how do you know that you have like the material for an entire book on that? The question of where do you find stories is so tricky because I think looking back at all the different long form pieces I've done and and books, they're just so varied from the incredibly bland answer that was an editor came to me with a book idea for my second book. So that's not exactly a treasure hunt. And he had a cool idea. And so we ran with it to scouring weird Facebook groups, discussions, and finding a little kernel in a place like that. When I first learned about Hawaiian cowboy history and specifically the story from 1908, I was just visiting a small museum here in the town of Waimea. And on the wall, they had a crooked black and white photograph of the hero of the story. And they had a four or five sentence Wikipedia style summary of what had taken place. You know, just just the facts, ma'am. In 1908, Ikua Purdy and two of his cousins traveled to Cheyenne, yada, yada, yada. And it just sparked a very organic and instantaneous curiosity. Really, you're hit with a lot of questions right away. Who were these people? What was it like for them to go there? How were they treated upon arrival in Cheyenne, Wyoming, all the way from Polynesia? And wait, this is just after annexation of the Hawaiian Islands. That must have introduced a really interesting element to this story. And and it it just sort of explodes. But then, of course, you just go home and assume that no one's going to like it or it's been done elsewhere. Yeah. You know, my uh, the mountain of orphaned story and book ideas I have is pretty um, significant. (laughs) So I did not think that writing about Hawaiian cowboys straight away was going to be a winner. But it was actually on a vacation to Hawaii at the time. So then I returned home to Portland and was doing some more reading and research and trying to see has the story already been done and trying to imagine other ingredients to the story. And and really, a couple of things happened. One, noticing like no one has written about Hawaiian cowboys very well for a mainstream audience. No one has really written about this episode. And that's kind of a story in and of itself, because, of course, you know, you have mostly white people writing about cowboy history. And then I really started to think that this was more than just a fun in-flight airline magazine piece when I discovered this guy named Angus McPhee, who was the five-time steer roping champion from Wyoming. So he becomes the rival to our Hawaiian hero. And so now suddenly, I, it's like you're trying to make sure there are enough calories for a whole meal. And... I knew that the political story was quite interesting in terms of a look at Hawaii and the rise of the cattle industry here and then annexation. But then on top of that, now we had an underdog sports story and we had sort of protracted through time because a steer roping contest is like a 40 second thing. You can't write a whole book about that. (laughs) But if you have the rivalry with Wyoming's, Wyoming's own Angus McPhee, whose name I just love, by the way, you know, then, then you're really on to something. And so it was really that, like, trying to see what would make a story beyond just 
the fun activity of introducing to the world the world to the idea and the reality that there are cowboys in the Hawaiian Islands and, and have been for a long time, because that's an interesting subject, but it's not a story. Over the course of your career, have you misjudged the caloric content of stories? And how do you think about like having enough to fit things into like various word counts and formats? Yes, I've definitely misjudged things. I think I think a lot of my editors, you know, in the magazine category, uh, I'm thinking, I think a lot of my editors have a good spidey sense for how long a piece to assign or what's a good word count for really telling this story well, but not overdoing it. And I think that in part, you know, just because they're good at their job, but also even in that preliminary research stage, when you're getting acquainted with a story that you want to tell and want to pitch, you're already falling in love with it in a way that is going to make you think it's especially worthy of the world's attention. Whereas an editor coming fresh to your pitch might be able to cut through the BS a little there and say, yeah, you know, that sounds like a great yarn. I don't see it being more than 4,500 words, but let's go after it. And at first you're like, oh, darn it. You know, I really wanted to do a 7,000 word romp with this thing, but, but I really want to go tell the story. So let's, let's go do what (laughs) the word count that they're wishing for. Obviously, usually you file a little more and, and there's some compromise later on, but uh, in general, I felt pleased by the process with editors and getting their sense of how long a thing it should be. And then, of course, like how to tell the story. Part of the way that you described that book was sort of how you get multiple genres or multiple narrative types within a single narrative. And I think that's actually something that unites multiple stories you've done. You had a story, I believe it was in Wired. Forgive me if I'm wrong. It's a story about currency forging and about how a a person who had ambitions in fine art ends up becoming a masterful, if somewhat manipulated, currency forger. And so there's sort of different modes within the story. It's a true crime story, but it's also a failed artist story. How do you use those kinds of genre ideas t- to put a story together? Huh, that's a, that's a good question. Maybe it's too good a question. <laughs> I don't know if I'm, <laughs> I'm, I, I'm not, not because I want you to move on, because I don't know if I'm thinking in terms of genres or uh-huh. disciplines. You know, what's the history angle to this story? What's the economic story? What's the true crime element? It's more just the mandate to tell the story well and all kinds of insecurity about whether I'll be able to pull it off. And you just kind of know at certain point in the story that the reader wants more or wants different. And I can be more specific than that, which is true crime stories are a dime a dozen. And God knows too many of them are being pitched and even assigned these days. But are the characters driving those stories, are they very compelling? The the people involved in the not just the circumstances and tension and drama they face, but the ideas they're grappling with. So yes, that story was about a counterfeiter who was very capable, but he was this kind of bumbling criminal. But the idea at the center of the story that drove it for me was the, in fact, quite blurry boundary between 
boundaries, I guess, between money and art and value. And here was a guy down on his luck, graphic artist from Germany who once was even like hobnobbing with Andy Warhol. Now he can't make a buck, but he sure can make a fake Benjamin. And we're going to this museum together in Cologne and he's looking at Andy Warhol's like famous $2 bills. And he's saying it all without saying it. You know, how does he become Warhol reproducing images of dollars? And why do I end up in jail reproducing images of dollars? And of course, there are legal answers to that question that are quite clear. But I just loved how I loved the ideas at the center of it, even more than the TikTok of kind of cinematic feature story. That sort of harmonization between uh, ideas about art and money, it just feels so natural in that story. When you drill into a person, are you able to find those harmonies in anyone? Or is it kind of one story in a hundred where everything lines up exactly for, for you in that way? I guess I'm asking like, how much is that just the natural interest that exists all over the place in the universe? And how much do you have to find stories that work on multiple levels in that way? I think you have to find stories on multiple levels that, that work. Which really, another way to say that is you have to find the people. And I feel that conversations about character and character development and strong characters, you know, it gets a little nauseating in my field, I feel like sometimes, because it's like, of course, I mean, you need that, like you need periods at end of sentences. Like, of course you need that. Do we really have to keep saying mm. it? But in this conversation, it's worth saying because there are great ideas out there where the sources or the characters just really weren't there. And then you're tucking your tail between your legs to so go look for the next one, or you're interviewing other potential stars of the story. So as an, as an example, a number of years ago now, I wrote a piece about warring ice cream truck businesses. And I was hanging out at this ice cream warehouse. I don't know what you call it. It's where all the ice cream truck people go to load up in the morning before heading it, hitting the mean streets of Portland. Depot. And Depot. And the distributor guy there, we had some nice conversations about some of the different people he'd met. And I was kind of trying to glean ideas from him. You know, who's got an interesting life story to tell? And he had a one or two half decent ideas and a couple of half-baked anecdotes to share, but nothing really compelling. So I had to go back a few times. And to cut to the chase a little, eventually I met Dennis. And Dennis and I sat down for a hamburger at this restaurant in downtown Portland. And this guy understood story. I mean, he told me about his life and his life in ice cream with such an incredible ear for storytelling that I was like, I almost dropped my notebook on the floor and just gave him a huge hug. So much to the point where he's telling me about his life in finance and then switching to ice cream and then this big pause. And he says, and then in, in 2009, my nemesis rolled into town, you know, or something like that. And you're just like, stop, stop. Are you, are you a gift from God? Or are you just a really an ice cream truck driver telling me your story? And so it's a really special feeling when you nail it like that, not because you've hit a home run out of any skill, but because you got, you know, you did do the legwork, 
to be in the place and to have those false starts with other potential sources. So it's not all luck, but you set things up in a way so that you could have some good fortune should you meet the right person. And boy, Dennis was was amazing. Okay. So at the very start of that anecdote, you were just hanging around with ice cream truck drivers, but not the right ice cream truck driver. So how do you organize your life so that you have space and the inclination to just proactively go hang out with ice cream truck drivers? Like, are you spending a certain amount of your time just trying to find stories by going into strange parts of the world? Yes, but I would say the going into to interesting places is a huge part of it for me. But usually once the plane has landed, I, I have an assignment. Mm-hmm. I always wish there was more time and space in life for more informational interviews, whether they're just over the phone or in person, really the, the kind of thing you're talking about, just nosing around a little uh, or a lot. I think it's just such an overlooked aspect of our profession to ask those other people what's really interesting to you or when, when you're at the bar with your other volcanologist friends, like who are the personalities you're really talking about? Cause then you're always struggling. I feel like I'm often struggling with this kind of philosophical reality that nothing is really original, but you can, I feel like the job can feel much more enterprising if you're trying to enterprise stories in that way and not just, seeing an 800 word news article in a major publication and, and thinking rightfully so, gosh, there's a much bigger story to be told there. Like, I think this could be a great magazine piece or, or more. I'm going to do some research and figure it out. And that, I think that's valuable. I love doing that. And that's certainly a skill, but it just feels a little more magical when you come up with the whole thing from scratch or, or nearly from scratch. So I don't get to do as much hanging out with the ice cream truck drivers, thinking there might be a story there. You know, that one had already been assigned because we we all felt confident that we could find the right rivalry to showcase. And if we didn't, we would sort of, if, I'm, if memory serves, then we would reassess. But otherwise, a lot of my story hunting is just phone calls and reading and, and emailing. Does it bother you? If someone else has done a story about the topic you're doing a story about, I mean, it started to feel like in the age of the internet that it's almost impossible to find a topic that someone has not already done something about. How much of your own lane do you need to feel like you can invest in one of these stories? Yeah, I really try to make sure that, I mean, some of it is just trying to make sure you're not going to get scooped much more in like a practical sense than like pursuing the art sense of things. Mm-hmm. After a story of mine has run and there's a lot of derivative material out there, you know, I get a little miffed and then I try to tell myself that imitation is the best form of flattery and emphasis on try. <laughs> yeah. And there've been a few that I think are sort of beyond the pale and I, I don't want to sound like sour grapes at all, but I know that other peers of ours and friends of yours too, you know, we've, dealt with some of this where a terrific feature or someone else has just turned it into a podcast that basically the episodes are structured perfectly like the article. And it's just, you know, it's just kind of ripping off in a way that's feels like it's crossing a line. It barely has a hat tip. There's no inclusion in sort of the business side. So, you know, that stuff does leave a bad taste in your mouth, but you do, you do have to move on. And then on, on the front end, in terms of like 
if I'm pitching an idea, first of all, you have to make sure that there isn't kind of competing prior art. And then I don't really feel threatened if there's like, I don't know if threatened is the right word, but let's go with it for the moment. <laughs> I, I don't really feel like the, the project is in jeopardy knowing that some other people are on the case too, because most of them are not writing features. And I have confidence that I will do it really well and in a way that's distinguished from people who are going to do a quick thousand word piece. And that's not to sound <laughs> cocky, although maybe it does, but also not to put down people who are turning things much faster, you know, shorter material faster. I mean, I have incredible admiration for people who cover spot news, anything, because I just think I would die of a heart attack like eight hours into a job at CNN or something, trying to produce material so quickly that's well-reported and fact-checked and coherent. <laughs> you know, I need like 10 or 20 months for a story. So, but going back to your original question, I don't, as long as I know there aren't other feature writers who contribute to sort of the same magazines I do, as long as I know someone like that isn't on the exact same story, then I, I feel rather at ease that, that everything's going to end up okay. Support for Long Form This Week comes from listening. If you find yourself behind the eight ball needing to read a bunch of academic papers or journals or any kind of dense reading material, you might make your life a lot easier by checking out listening. It takes anything, articles, books, PDFs, and turns the text into spoken word that you can absorb no matter what you're doing. The app has a lifelike AI voices complete with emotion and intonation that creates a realistic and pleasant listening experience. So I had to go into the city for some meetings. I needed to review some PDFs, threw them in there, listen to them on the way. It was both pleasant and I kind of forgot that I wasn't like listening to a professionally done audiobook or something like very quickly. The voices sounded totally natural and human to me. This listening app might just transform how you consume reading material and you can give it a shot yourself risk-free. Now, normally you get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use the code longform at checkout listening. Your life just got a lot easier. You founded a sort of a, a story development studio that develops stories uh, with an eye towards TV and film rights. Mm -hmm. Is Atelan the correct uh, pronunciation? Correct. Tell me about that. Why did you start it? And what effect do you think kind of the rise of film and TV rights playing a role in the magazine journalism industry? What has changed as a result of that? The idea really spun out of what we were loosely calling at the time in Portland, just Pitch Club, hmm. which even just giving it a name makes it sound more organized than it was. But it was a name for really just a handful of journalist friends getting together here and there to commiserate and share story ideas and sometimes even print out a draft of a pitch and workshop together and share editorial contacts or suggestions of where that story might find a good home. You know, if someone has something about the drug trade and they're talking about Esquire or someone else at the table, oh, you know what, actually, I think I just saw a piece there six or eight months ago that was 
had some similar ideas or similar topic, you might want to check that out before you send it on to an editor. And so it was that level of very early in the process advice Mm. between peers. So together with a, a couple of other journalist friends, we realized that there's real value in this activity for one another and for other writers out there, especially up and coming writers. The other thing we realized is that we could deliver still more value because most writers, especially freelance writers, are not aware of these ideas of derivative rights or adaptation rights, TV film, what, you know, what to do with that stuff. Mm. When you finally get a green light, first of all, and then are presented with a contract. So to cut to the chase, we have turned that into a business. So we help our peers polish pitches, get an assignment, and cheer them on while they're doing the doing. Not We're not going to get in the way of their relationship with the editor at a Smithsonian or outside or Esquire. And then once the story's done, should we together have success optioning the film for adaptation in some format, you know, then we would all kind of share in that success. But it's a huge if, of course, mm. if these things have any afterlife in Hollywood. But it's been great. You know, it's been great because first and foremost, all I really like to do is talk about cool story ideas. So this just means I get to talk about more of them and other people's ideas are coming to me. And so I get to kind of consider them through the lens of an editor. And then I also feel good, you know, without sounding too purple, because we're trying to give our peers an assist because this gig is just so challenging when it comes to the financial side of things. And writers and especially feature writers, you know, they're so incredibly undervalued, period. Their compensation is so paltry that when you finally get a yes, let's say from a Smithsonian or outside or something, most writers are just going to sign the damn contract and go do the thing. And if they pause on that section of the contract that has to do with adaptation rights and maybe even are tempted to redline something so that they could keep the rights, then you're in a situation, and I I say this because I, I was there for like a decade, where there's a real asymmetry in terms of like the power dynamic. Mm. Because if I get an editor excited about a story idea and she wants to assign it, and we're we're all excited about going off to tag along with you know winter warfare troops in Finland. But then I come back and I say, hey, wait a sec, you know, part six of the contract, I'm not that comfortable with. So now suddenly I'm like the problem child. And even if we make it through this, this kind of um, sticky moment or this kind of um, extra complication may influence how she sees my next pitch for the next idea 20 months from now. And all of this maybe is at the subconscious level, but it certainly bugged me as no, a writer. I, it can't just be at a subconscious level because I'm like vaguely uncomfortable just even hearing I like hearing about this hypothetical situation that didn't exist. This is why I'm a terrible negotiator. It's, it's right. The minute I start feeling, I'm just like, or I could just cave. Exactly. Exactly. And you know, I'm I'm a writer too, so I'm hardly like a, a pit bull or anything, but. That power dynamic is a real problem in our field. You know, it's hard enough as a writer and journalist to like stick up for yourself and your own rights or to tell a publication I I had to recently, like, if you don't run the story soon, I've got to take it elsewhere. Like I owe it to the people who I told this story is going to be out in the world. And like, and as a businessman, I need, I need to get this story out there. 
So anyway, that, it's really hard to stick up for yourself as a writer. And so when you get the yes and you're presented with the contract, I think there's a real take the path of least resistance kind of behavior and you just sign the thing. And so what we try to do is stick up for writers in that particular moment, not just because we're nice, but also because the rights are accounted for in the partnership between a talent and the writer. So if a future editor, Aaron, is trying to like prey on you and the derivative rights to the feature you're going to work so hard on so that you can't make any money off of a TV film thing, then you could say, look, I'm so excited to work on this story with you and travel to Finland and go get a great one for your magazine. Unfortunately, I can't sign this contract in its current form because the adaptation rights identified in section six, like they're already accounted for. And so now suddenly, Aaron, like you're not the problem child. You're just happen to be a writer who isn't always getting steamrolled. <laughs> One of the reasons that you and I have like a, you know, a very casual emailing relationship is that from very early in doing long form, uh, you were always one of the people who sent me your work with a really nice note, like, you know, persistently, like I, uh, every time you had a new story in my inbox and it sort of struck me that like, maybe you were a bit ahead of the curve in sort of thinking about your writing practice as a small business that needed both creative work and also marketing work and uh, business savvy. Tell me about that sort of part of what you do and how it's evolved over time. I don't even actually really know how you got into writing in the first place. Well, yeah, I like ahead of the curve and business savvy to describe the activity of sending you my stories versus like <laughs> desperate for six more readers. So I'm going to go with that. <laughs> it might be the same thing, basically. Yeah, exactly. Well, first of all, like I am and have always been like incredibly impressed with what you guys are doing and, and have done to sort of create more of a community among long-form creators and consumers. And so some of sharing those stories with you was just like to try to <laughs> keep that very thin bit of connection. But then also, yes, like I know that as a writer and journalist, unfortunately, you have to shout it from the rooftops as best you can when a new story comes out and try and get that attention. And it's uncomfortable, if not infuriating, because my sensibility is to be the fly on the wall with a notebook, taking notes about someone else's life to write a story. So then to file the thing or see it published, and then you have to for, for X amount of time for a magazine piece and certainly much more so for a book, you have to shout and showcase and come up with witty things to say about your piece on Twitter that somehow doesn't sound like bragging. And it's just very painful for me in a lot of ways. And I would say just sending you a quick email is like definitely one of the least painful ones because I, I knew, I know this is what you do and like you're a real reader of this kind of material. So it wasn't like, you know, trying to force a big name personality who writes about golf or something to suddenly take a break and share with their 3 million Twitter followers a, a link to my story about a counterfeiter. You know what I mean? Like it's in your wheelhouse. So I knew it wasn't, it would be well received. And as far as how I got into all of this, uh, I went to journalism school, finished that in 2000. And then I had a 
a journalism job hunting for science and tech stories for radio for a stint and suddenly realized I could turn some of those stories into magazine pieces for publications like New Scientist was one of the first publications I ever wrote for. And uh, then I had a fellowship to go to Japan for a stretch. And that was an interesting time because I think this was 2003 and a lot of media companies were already pulling back a lot of their foreign correspondence as the whole give it away for free problem with the internet was becoming clear and they were losing a lot of money. So suddenly I was contributing stories to like Newsweek and similar publications from Japan because I happened to be there. And then pretty soon I, um, I had a book deal to write about left-handedness and asymmetry in the universe. Uh, and that, that began, you know, at a party on Cape Cod, I think I met a guy who was a book agent and told him I was a journalist. Oh, do, you know, have you ever had a cool idea? And I said, you know, I always thought there'd be a need to do a book on the mystery of left and right-handedness. And it was just sort of an offhand thing. And he, he was like, Hey, you know, there is something there that could be cool. We should talk. And so that started me down the the path with, with writing books. And then for magazine stuff, it just, they just keep coming. Like it's hard to, it's hard not to explore a neat idea that, that crosses my desk. I just can't, I can't shut it off. You wrote a book after the book about left-handedness, about currency, about the future of money. Is that a fair description? Yes. And it, the book ended up being kind of prescient or, or the right place at the right time, because like the decade that was going to happen after that book was the rise of cryptocurrencies. At that time, what interested you in that field and, and what has it been like sort of observing, planting a flag at one point and then watching history sort of barrel past that flag? Yeah, I, I do think I got lucky early on with some of this interest in future forms and types of money and currency. And Bitcoin makes a very brief appearance in the end of money. But I I don't think it was prescient in the sense that I even... I wasn't capable of seeing just how huge of a tidal wave of interest this would be. I, I was primarily enchanted by some of the the larger ideas behind it. You know, what gives currency value in the first place? If you reject national currency, you know, are you actually rejecting the state itself? And what does decentralization mean? You know, that was sort of a hot element of, of the crypto world. So. Now I feel like just a fascinated observer like everybody else, particularly with current headlines. But at the time, it was a little more like, wow, is this shit really going to go anywhere? <laughs> yeah. And lo and behold, it, it, it sure has, but it's obviously quite tumultuous. There were a lot of people back then who were like, should I buy Bitcoin? And I chose to say, truthfully, that I didn't buy any because I didn't want to be seen as trying to talk up the value of this thing I now owned. And I now see that that was really stupid and I probably should have just bought a little as an experiment and told people that and let them make their own decisions because even though Bitcoin's lost a ton of value now, if I'd bought some back in 2010 or whatever it was, it would be a different story. Yeah. I mean, I actually, I went back and read some of the book and in some ways I feel like it's the least cringy that early writing about digital currency can be because you're not starting from the standpoint of uh, being interested in Bitcoin and working your way back to digital currency. You're starting from the idea that people pursuing digital ideas of currency is sort of a natural 
human evolution and that something was going to come along, that, that something about sort of the uh, way that we were evolving as a species in our relationship to money would make the jump from the physical to the digital without being sort of too prescriptive about exactly how it was going to go down. Yeah, I think that's how I felt, you know, reporting on that subject and, and hearing from all those different players. It was really this sense of urgency that money itself needs an upgrade because it is a technology. And in that, I don't think they're wrong. Now, what is the solution is, is a whole other question. And obviously, one that people have proposed is, is cryptocurrencies. And so, anyway, I mean, this is going very general, very quickly, but listening to those people talk, it's just fascinating because they're, they're so impassioned about it, right? And again, you know, that doesn't matter if they're talking about currency or dyslexia or volcanoes or COVID conspiracy theorists, you're just along for the ride. And so I did become completely uh, consumed by thinking about different forms of money and different types of currency and I still, to this day, you know, every time I see a headline about crypto, probably the only idea from my book that comes to mind still is this idea that like the money is the state and the state is the money. And so if we all throw in with cryptocurrencies, like what is the bigger message about our confidence in the institutions and of government that we have, have built to organize our society? So anyway, it gets quite heady. <laughs> the counterfeiting yeah. guy was a lot more fun. <laughs> <laughs> well, the the most uh, recent story you've done also touches on some of that. So, so you did a story for the Times. Give us the basic overview uh, of, of what the story is about. Sure. So the piece is about uh, two young men, a guy from Grand Rapids, Michigan, and a young man named Shukri Abdul-Rashid from upstate New York, who uh, during kind of the most severe lockdown periods of COVID, fell victim really to, I, I think, a combination of paranoia and extremist content online, conspiracy theories about COVID, and what other people would, would say is most likely mental illness or right on the edge of mental illness. And <clears throat> so much so that they, they managed to find this online personality. In the story, we call him a guru. I hate to say that because I think that even that is almost too flattering. But anyway, it's this clown that they connect with through his YouTube channel, and he convinces them to fly to Hawaii. And then he charters two boats to sail these two men and himself and his mother from Hawaii across a huge swatch of the Pacific to the Cook Islands, where they want to reestablish the kingdom of Christ in some COVID-free place. And they don't end up in the Cooks. There's all kinds of conflict along the way in terms of uh, sort of maritime misadventure. And then these two men eventually go missing in this tiny French territory called Wallace and Futuna, which is sort of between American Samoa and Fiji. And now are, are presumed dead, but there was never any bodies nor proof of life. And so the story is, is about what happened to them how all of this went down, what has happened to their families uh, since then. And it was a difficult one. <laughs> I think the part that I originally wanted to talk about with regards to the story is generally when you read about um, 
let's call it like YouTuber COVID vaccine conspiracy theory. It's through a lens of media or politics. Mm -hmm. And this story has to take on those, those same ideas from a perspective that's almost religious or, and medical. It's about what happens to people when they become sort of uh, flooded with a messianic belief that leads them to do things that someone uh, in their right mind would never even consider, like jumping off of a boat. How did you consider that in putting together the story? Yeah, you know, I, I knew early on this wasn't and really didn't have to be a very political piece. You know, it was going to be very, very close into the experience of these individuals. And then in doing that, readers get the signals that they already have antenna for. So if I'm mentioning, for example, that one of the ship captains believes that the COVID vaccine means putting nanobots in your bloodstream, that's all I really need to say. Then I can move on because readers are smart and readers are familiar with fringy ideas and even familiar with some of the political events that ended up amplifying fringy ideas, whether it's ivermectin or Clorox or nanobots. And so, you know, I never needed to put Trump in this story, for example. And I feel like that really close up look at the experiences and worldview of the individuals in the story by resisting those like side conversations about political ideas, you accomplish a few things. One is you keep your tempo. You keep your story moving, especially if there's a lot of action. And the other one is that you, if you pull it off, it is a more compassionate portrait, I think, because it's so easy to be judgy of, well, period. It's just so easy to be judgmental. But if I take so many of those asides to put, for example, COVID conspiracy stuff in context, you know, there's no way for me to write that without kind of showing my cards in a way in terms of my own biases or um, political views or judgments. And that's not to say I'm a robot. There's no objective writing by human beings, but I think it, it can read like somehow more compassion or at least like big hearted. If you just are telling, especially a story this tragic, frankly, just telling like in very fine detail, very carefully reported detail, like what happen to these people and then then everyone else can sort of take away from it what they what they need to i'm interested uh, on a nuts and bolts level there's this revelation in the story spoiler alert if you haven't read the story that the two guys who were who are in the sailboat allegedly jumped off and are, are probably dead and i think the early part of the story would read really differently if you know that from the beginning, how do you think about what things to make people aware of when, when you're telling a story like this, particularly a story like this, that in addition to a story being a story about, you know, vaccine fear is also a adventure story about people trying to sail a sailboat much further than they should possibly try. <laughs> yeah. You know, structuring this piece was really challenging and I should say there were many different versions. It was initially assigned, in fact, as like a three-part series. 
Mm. About two and a half times as long as what was finally published. And so aside from the fact that there were structural changes to that longer version, then when we had to pare it down to this much more modest piece, there was yet again more shifting things around. And you know, one of the things about me with with structure and process is I I think to a fault, I, I believe or know that there are a lot of different ways to go about telling a story well. And so I end up kind of, yeah, that could work or, oh yeah, maybe we should do that. Or then the editor will suggest something back. <laughs> yeah, that let's try that. And I don't know who, how people can feel so sure about a solution so quickly and, and stick by it with such confidence. Cause I'm, I'm often kind of wondering or changing, m- mixing things up. All of which is to say like the version that's out there now, I, I'm super happy with it. But there was there was an earlier version where they jumped off the boat in the, at the very top of the story. Mm. This is the one I sort of came up with at first, even though I, I think it's superior now, is the reveal for that one is that you don't know that these guys are struggling so much with, with mental illness and COVID conspiracy and fringe religion stuff. So it's kind of the mystery of the jump and the conflict with the ship captain and whether he might have killed them or not. And then that slowly unspools the COVID paranoia story that is probably, sadly, familiar to a lot of people with watching friends and, and loved ones even get taken by misinformation. And so it's almost like in that version, over the course of the story, like they're taken by misinformation. And in the story we end up with, which I do think is better, ultimately sort of they're taken by the sea, I guess. And you you learn much earlier on in the piece that they have been consuming a lot of this nonsense online and are and are really struggling with their mental state, which, you know, which is obviously so important from a storytelling standpoint. It was something that gave me concern because when you're writing about people who are very deranged right off the bat, you know, I know I've been that reader sometimes. Where it's like, these people just sound nuts. I, I'm not going to sit with this for 5,000 words right now. I'm going to go watch The White Lotus. And so that kind of scared me a little bit, that people would dismiss the main characters in my story too, too quickly. as just yet another couple of people who are just totally screwed up by COVID stuff. I, I, can't, I can't take that on right now. Anyway, so hopefully we wrote it in a way where people want to stick, stick with it and care enough about them and what they went through to get through all the, the adventure and, and yes, the, the tragedy of it. David, thank you so much for this interview. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks, Aaron. You've been listening to the Long Form Podcast. Thanks very much to David Woolman. Thanks to our editor, Gabriella Saldivia. Thanks to Megan Valley for putting together the show notes. Thanks to my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. Thanks to everyone over at Vox. We'll be back with a new show in 2023. Support for Long Form this week came from Listening. Listening makes it easy to convert written text to pleasant audio tracks you can take in no matter what you're doing. 
It offers AI voices that manage to express emotion and correctly pronounce complicated technical terms, all while sounding like actual human beings, not robots. The listening app might just transform how you consume reading material, and you can give it a shot for yourself risk-free. Normally, you get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use code longform at checkout. Listening. Your life just got a lot easier. <laughs> 